Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Good afternoon, everyone in Europe. Uh, good morning in the US. And welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. I'm Vasilis Dutas. I'm the Senior International Relations Policy Advisor at FEPS. And in this episode, we will explore the recent coup in Myanmar, its geopolitical underpinnings and repercussions, but also the links between what is happening in the country to the overall trends of democratic backsliding observed elsewhere in the region, but also in the world. And for this reason, I'm very fortunate and honored to welcome to today's episode Ambassador Derek Mitchell, the president of the National Democratic Institute in the U.S. Ambassador Mitchell has previously served as the United States ambassador to Myanmar, the first U.S. ambassador to the country in 22 years. And prior to that, as the first U.S. special representative and policy coordinator for the country and the principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for Asian and Pacific security affairs. Ambassador Mitchell, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Now, let's start with the situation in Myanmar. What is really happening in the country? Because we are receiving devastating reports. We are seeing some devastating news coming out of the country with the situation becoming increasingly bloody and violent. So what is really happening in the country and why is it happening? Well, uh, it is extraordinarily depressing to watch. It is really the slow degradation of a country into essentially a failed state because of the actions of a few within the military who have traditionally felt that they have certain prerogatives in the political system, that they have the right to insert themselves if they don't like the way things are going in the country. And it's just been the history since certainly the last 60 years since the first coup in 1962. But it's also the end of a, of a kind of experimental period of the past decade of a hybrid political system where there was a nascent uh, democratic opening that led to uh, the famous Named, uh, human rights uh, or democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's had a bit of a falling out with the international community in recent years, but she's won landslide elections and they took over much of the politics, political leadership of the country. Uh, and the military decided on February 1st that they were either humiliated or troubled by the way it was going, or they thought they can get away with this. And they were going to at least try a reset where they will take over control for a time and then establish a much more controlled democracy than the controlled democracy they had before. And what we're seeing now is the people rising up as one saying, no, we're not going back. We had 50 years of this. It destroyed our country, uh, the promise of our country country and a new generation that felt the promise, that had a hopeful future, they're taking to the streets, they're sacrificing everything, including their lives, in order to hold on to the promise of something better rather than a pullback to the past. And of course, this is the optimistic side against a largely negative, largely bloody backdrop. But perhaps uh, let's focus a little bit on these actors. So you mentioned the military, you mentioned the generals, um, you referred to the failed hopes. Um, that were created, at least in the international community, with the rise of uh, San Shu Chi. If we were to look at these actors and study the last few years, this process of democratic experimentation, could we have seen this coming? There were rumors over the past five years that the military was always hovering behind the scenes. So to that degree, it's not a surprise because they've done coups. They've taken over when they felt they needed to repeatedly. 
uh, over the past 60 years, uh, at least twice uh, in, in 62 and 88. And 88 was kind of a coup against themselves. <laughs> so it's not a surprise in that sense. And we knew that the relationship between Aung San Suu Kyi and the commander in chief was very bad. And they had stopped basically in meeting. And that relationship was the most important one for a transition like this one, a very, very delicate one delicate dance between military who mistrust the civilians and civilians who mistrust the military. So that way we could have seen that coming, but it surprised everybody when it happened. It surprised people in the country. It surprised people right up to the moment that it occurred. And I was talking in touch with people who have their finger on the pulse, who are in the media or civil society. And some 50% were saying, yes, it's going to happen. 50% said, no, it's not going to happen. But it isn't a surprise in the sense that you, know, you look back and you see a lot of evidence. But I also believe it wasn't inevitable. I think it also was something the military took the step because maybe they miscalculated, I frankly think. Uh, they didn't think it was going to create the reaction that it has. And there were questions whether the uh, civilian party, National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi mishandled things in the last days of not showing more respect or finding a way to compromise with the military over the past, you know, the last weeks, days, weeks, and months before. This is where we are. And that's unfortunately the tragedy of Myanmar, which is that um, they're not very good at this trust and political game. They're all very, you know, have their mindset and they're moving forward in their own ways. And that's why you have the longest running civil war in the world. You have 70 years of them fighting each other since independence. Very, very tragic. Right. You did mention that many in the country were surprised by this turn of events. I would say also most people, most observers in the international community were also surprised. Yeah. Um, are you happy with the international response so far? And for that matter, what would you like the US, perhaps with the EU, to do to better address this situation? Yeah. Well, you, I mean, I'm... I recognize the limitations that the international community had, that some in the international community, the United States doesn't have a lot of leverage. After the Rohingya crisis in particular, our relationships had atrophied and a lot of the, including with the military. Even then, you know, we don't have a lot of investments, economic and business investments, and don't have close ties with senior levels of the, of the military. We didn't have military relations. So I think the US has done all it could. I think it's exercised leadership. It came out immediately and said, that uh, we we were going to shut down the financial flows and we will do it can't last and we were going to work with the international community and I think we have so I'm generally pleased with the way the U.S. government has uh, responded I'm, I'm less pleased with the way Asia has responded and the EU has moved relatively slowly we can come to that but in, in Asia you know the uh, Southeast Asian nations the neighbors uh, even Japan have thought in terms of geopolitics or in terms of their business interests. Either they think, well, we don't want to push them the military to China, which is a very short-sighted and misguided approach, um, which we can get into about how that's not necessarily what's going to happen. And it's not, you know, it's just not appropriate for this moment. You know, and what they're watching is a steady degradation, as I mentioned, to a failed state. And it's not your typical coup in Southeast Asia. It's not your typical Thailand scenario of 2014. Uh, this is going to have an effect on the entire region if they're not careful, but they're treating it as business as usual that, oh, we can't do anything here, hands off. Let's just watch this play out and then we'll, we'll deal with it later. It's, they need to be much more proactive. I think that ASEAN can lead in organizing an international coalition, a meeting with the EU there, with the United States, with China, Japan, and India to think through a coordinated strategy that's much more assertive in addressing, you know, going after the, the military's money, going after, you know, supporting an arms embargo through the United Nations. Russia is the one that's blocking that, but 
Can we get China to go along? It's not in China's interest either for there to be a failed state in when they have a long border with this country. So there's much more that can be done. Whether it would make the difference in the short term or not is a question mark because the military is used to being sanctioned. They're used to being isolated and they have money. But again, I don't think they expected this kind of generalized and overall condemnation and shame on them. And it does matter. And as long as they feel they can get away with it or there's some opening, the region is kind of watching and not going to really pull the trigger on on harder uh, measures mm-hmm. that they're going to continue on. They don't mind killing their people in order to get their way. So putting all the pieces of the puzzle that you just uh, mentioned together, if we were to look at the situation through a geopolitical lens, what would be the key trends that we would see? What would be the key interests conflicting here? I'm talking about regional interests, interests beyond the country's borders. And you mentioned China. I want a special comment on the role of China in this regard. Perhaps also Russia, given the resistance to punish the the generals at UN Security Council level. Yeah. Well, the Russians, it's all, as we see, elsewhere, all a matter of their of money. I mean, they're selling weapons. They don't care who they can sell weapons to. If there's a civil war there, they'll sell weapons to both sides if they can. Purely mercenary in that sense and unhelpful. And maybe they want to tweak the West or others to show that they have influence even in this country in Southeast Asia. But generally, they have no particularly geopolitical interest, at least traditionally, whether they want to assert one now, we'll have to watch. With China, they do have a great interest. Um, and the irony is they did not have a problem with the previous system, with the way things have gone in the last five years. They didn't like it during the time, frankly, when I was there, when there was an opening and uh, there was a leaning to the West and there was a momentum towards democracy. When Aung San Suu Kyi came in, I mean, she was more interested in, in the West, but uh, for the first year and a half or so. But she wanted to get investments. She wanted to make sure she managed the China relationship. And so she reassured China. And then after the Rohingya crisis in August of 2017, when the whole world came down hard on her and the government and the military, she would say, well, we'll just turn to China. And she thought of, she played the China card and and China felt that its interests were being protected there. So they had a good deal where their interests were protected, their business interests, their prerogatives of being kind of the, the first among equals in the country, a desire to have road and rail networks that run from Western China to Indian Ocean were protected. And they had it under a quasi-democratic system uh, with a leader that had popular support as opposed to the military. That's all gone now. So they're in a very difficult spot in a way. I think they're playing, they're being very careful. They're going to watch how this plays out. They see that the people of, of Myanmar are coming out in massive numbers and protesting in front of the Chinese embassy and burning. Well, I don't know if they burned the factories, but factories are under under siege, potentially burned by them. The anti-China feeling is very high. So they're talking to the opposition quietly as well. So the idea that, and meanwhile, the military dislikes them. They've been, China has supported some of the ethnic groups fighting the military, killing the military. So the Chinese are playing all sides of this. So it shouldn't be geopolitical. It should be in the interest of all, frankly, to get them back, uh, Myanmar back on its feet um, and not have refugee flows and human trafficking flows and drug flows and all the things that happen to health problems during a pandemic, during a period where there is this kind of chaos. That's what happens. That's a product of this chaos. So the question is, who's going to bring them all together and have that conversation? And unfortunately, so far, everyone has been returning to their traditional mindsets of you know who's aligned with whom and is this a coup and is it good enough in Southeast Asia to have a military regime? That's not what we're talking about. It's not Cambodia or Thailand or Vietnam. We're talking about 
a failed state in the heart of Asia. And the region needs to wake up, and frankly, the world needs to wake up to it. Fairly depressing reading of what is happening. I would be tempted to ask you if you can prognosticate whether this will end up being a short-lived experiment. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to do that because uh, I wonder <laughs> if you if you would have an answer. I mean, feel free to do that, to venture a oh, guess. About- well, can I say something on that? I think the yes, experiment please, is over. Yeah. Absolutely, the experiment, not experiment of democracy writ large, but the experiment of a hybrid system. I mean, the, the thought was that, look, the military put together a constitution that was hybrid. They felt it was controlled. They felt, frankly, like Thailand, if people know Thailand, that Thailand established a constitution and enabled the military basically take off the uniform, win elections, control the, the system. I think the Myanmar military, I thought they had it controlled and now they got Aung San Suu Kyi and they were being sort of uh, outmaneuvered. And and so we thought, and the, the, the people of Myanmar thought, well, they can maybe work with this and work on a tr- gradual transition to move the military out of politics, just gradually, like Indonesia. So that was, the, that was the experiment. But now I think that experiment is over. Now you have a polarized environment where clearly the military didn't think that worked. They're not going to go back to that, whatever comes out of this uh, after this coup. And the people are completely done with it. They're saying, we want the military completely out. We don't trust the military. We're not going back either. So the status quo ante is not possible. Mm -hmm. That experiment is over. The experiment of democracy remains to be seen how this is going to play out. As you say, with guys with guns who are willing to, who have massive weaponry being sold to them by the Russians, they can impose tremendous damage as we saw in Syria. If a military decides or an elite feel that they're willing to destroy a country to save themselves uh, with the support of Russians, they'll do it. And so far, that's what we're seeing from this military. They're not, it doesn't look like they're going to split. We'll see though, at the same time, the people are not giving up. So I don't believe that experiment of democracy is over. I think over time, there's no choice if there's going to be peace in this country. That's why there's been civil war, because people have not had a voice, uh, even the ethnic minorities, nationalities. But we'll have to see in the short term how this particular situation turns out. All right. You mentioned a key word here being democracy. And Mm -hmm. our collective hope is that the democratic experiment does not end here. But zooming out a little bit, and you certainly hinted at the peculiarity or the uniqueness of Myanmar. But do you see this as a Myanmar story, particularly country-specific story, Mm. Uh, that might have uh, cross-border repercussions, but is endemic to the particular country? Or do you see it as a particularly brutal part of a larger regional or or global story? Because democracy for a time seemed to be surging in the region. And with the caveats of those countries being different, you mentioned Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines. You know, we had uh, strong signs of democratic backsliding there, democratic retreat. So I'd be interested uh, to hear your thoughts on this? I think it's a combination of both. It's very difficult to disentangle what is purely internal and and where they may have gotten inspiration from outside. I don't think they got support from the outside, like tangible support and such. But you know, when Thailand coup happened in 2014, I was ambassador and people would ask me because it's still, we didn't know where the opening was going to go. Uh, even at that time, the nascent reform in the country. They asked me, so what do you think? Is this going to affect the trajectory? Does that mean the military is going to turn back? And I said, first of all, they can always turn back. I mean, nothing is irreversible. We see that any democracy or any country. I said, but I likened it to a bar moving in next to a recovering alcoholic. You know, they were trying to reform themselves. And then next door, what happens is a signal of the model that they remember. 
And it's like, you know, go, oh, you know, they kind of leaning to your, I remember that it smells, it looks so good. Look out, you know. So I worried that that model, and in fact, we're seeing evidence even now that the commander in chief uh, took inspiration from that. And he reached out to Prayut, the uh, current prime minister, former military lead in the aftermath, even before the coup, there were discussions. And I think he took, they may have felt that that was the model they wanted, that they can get to that place. That's what they intended, but they didn't get from the 20, 2008 constitution. So there is that inspiration, but otherwise this is how the military and the country acts. And again, I don't think it was inevitable. You know, I do think it was, you know, a misguided and mishandled situation internally though we can't be certain of what exactly drove it. The other thing I should say too, we can see connections regionally and certainly globally too is on the other side. It's on the response. I hope your your listeners uh, know about the so-called Milk Tea Alliance, which is getting more and more attention now. It's a coalition of netizens, of young tech-savvy activists who are connected from Taiwan to Hong Kong to Thailand, who are working in solidarity against, not in Thailand, Taiwan, of course, but in Thailand and Hong Kong, working against a government, an oppressive authoritarian government. Uh, and they've now brought uh, Myanmar into it and the young people of Myanmar. And they use that three-fingered salute from Hunger Games and they network with each other and they're they're leaderless in essence. So they they can organize themselves very efficiently. That also is uh if you want to look at trends on democracy, that's also a trend. And not only in Southeast Asia, but around the world. You can see it in Sudan or in Belarus or I mean just go around the world, young people, Lebanon, of young people uh, using technology to support democracy against the regression, the authoritarian research that you mentioned. So you're seeing both things in Myanmar uh, and it's inspirational in that sense. I think we need to be focused on both as we fight this battle of ideas globally. Okay, so perhaps let's focus a little bit more on the issue of democracy, a topic that I know is very close to your heart, mm -hmm. uh, but also it's the epicenter of what NDI does, serves, promotes. I mean, we have heard a lot about the significance of the, of the democracy agenda, a resurgent democracy agenda in terms of external action, especially in the US with the election of the Biden administration after years of eroding guardrails, if you want, or resistance against dictatorship authoritarianism. So what is your take on what the US government, the Biden administration can do in this regard with partners like Europe, also what Europe can realistically expect to do with the new administration in this regard? There's an internal aspect to this, given the tremendous work that needs to happen at home on both right. sides of the Atlantic to address yeah. these signs of exhaustion in our democracies. So for example, that brings up the obvious question, how do you see the US government, the Biden administration to work with Europe on issues like democratic retreat in countries like Hungary and Poland? But there's also that external dimension. So how do you see this democracy agenda be best incorporated in the foreign policy of the US? And just to pack one more question in this bundle, yeah. how do you see this agenda being uh being operationalized in the future, both with like-minded countries, partners, but also vis-a-vis -vis authoritarian state? Well, that is a huge question. There's no doubt that I think we're seeing this, that democracy is not just a, a nice to have. We're seeing that it's strategic, that it, it matters enormously around the world and that there's now a contest going on. And that, and I don't want to make this all about China. I'll start just with China, but you, your question is much bigger than China. But there are China, Russia, others are, and you can say even Turkey or Saudi, they're out there trying to shape countries according to their liberal interests more and more. China is the leader of this because they have the biggest ambition, global ambitions, the most resources. So they're in the will. They see it really essential, not just to make the whole world authoritarian, but 
to ensure that the rules and the norms and the standards and such cater to more liberal values. Um, they're very upfront about it. They don't believe that civil society should have a role in governance and that they need to be transparent. And, and they're very much self-interested as they go about doing this work. So we need to be out there if we believe in that uh, transparent, accountable, inclusive environmentally and, and socially sustainable investments and development are important, we have to go out and make that a norm. And we have to shape those rules. Now, I think we need to, and given we have to, first of all, now recognize that we are in a competition and respond accordingly. Um, and that means having uh, recognizing democracy um, as a strategic factor, and therefore putting resources to it, working together, thinking about what the, those norms, rules, standards that we want to promote globally. We, a lot of talk is about tech standards, about uh, data standards. That's extremely important. Uh, use of information, ensuring that platforms are designed for democracy, that these algorithms are, are not contributing to more division, more alienation, that they build sort of democratic values of communication and cooperation and compromise. Uh, I don't think there's any substitute for face-to-face -face interaction ever in human endeavor or in a democracy, but we live in a digital environment. So if people are going to be on screens, it should be at least the algorithms and the, and the, the orientation should be more towards, towards unity and conversation. And we need to, there's a democracy summit or summit for democracy that the Biden administration is talking about. That's an opportunity to set the agenda. It's an opportunity for countries to come together and affirm, again, some of the values and the very practical ways to go after not just tech, but corruption, uh, which is at the heart of a lot of uh, illiberal and authoritarian regimes, and uh, free speech and free media, um, and the role of women, the role of youth, all these things that are central, we must do together and coordinate the efforts. The U.S., and the EU should be doing this, talking. If we have defense dialogues, we should have democracy dialogues at senior levels on a regular basis. To discuss that at the intelligence community should be talking about what do we see in countries that is happening so we are aware of the political dynamics. And we should be reaching out to other countries. Japan should be part of this. Taiwan already has a foundation, but Japan can have a foundation for democracy. We should be encouraging those who have development agencies to think very much about integrating the political development component, the open society component uh, to this. And then being very, um, you know, we can't be perfectly consistent with every country, but we must embed this in our relations with folks like Hungary or Poland and not pull our punches. There has to be a cost to that kind of regression because it does come at the expense of our strategic relationships. It makes Hungary as they descend much more of a close partner with Russia, just naturally because of the system. And Poland becomes less of a, of a strategic partner, even though we still have a good relationship, uh, because of the values questions like this and the rules questions. Uh, they become an obstacle. So um, it's a delicate balance. India is another one, if I may say, we have to be very careful with. But we need to, we need to have very frank conversations with our partners on this because the regression will cause, in my view, a real problem in, in global affairs uh, in a competition with an illiberal uh, authoritarian China uh, for the coming, coming years. A demanding 
list of tasks to do. Uh, both transatlantic partners have a responsibility to to address yeah. some of these things, both at home and beyond their borders. And indeed, I also see it as part of a larger global trend affecting the quality and the depth of democratic politics. And the key so, is, yeah, yeah, please. The key is to understand that it, this matters. I, I I worry sometimes it's like a nice thing, with just a values or an idealistic thing. It is not. It matters for the stability. We're seeing that in Burma right now, Myanmar, seeing it all over the place. The inability to have a system that gives voice to people's aspirations has a real effect. You know, if I worry that at every moment in Europe, where it can happen in the United States in the past, but Europe's not thinking about standards for telecommunications, or at the first opportunity when they have an economic opportunity in China, well, you know, we'll have a a, um, a deal, commercial deal with China. And we'll slough aside the, the relationship with our allies because we have short-term financial gain through our businesses that eventually China will take over You know, in the medium and longer term. There has to be a long-term view, a strategic view about why this stuff matters. Um, and every survey says that democracy enables better health outcomes, better education outcomes, better peace outcomes. And without it, we will not have a stable world for business and the rest. So moving away from those short-term uh, calculations is essential for all countries and the EU in particular to be mindful of this and not sacrifice it at the first look of a, of a dollar or a euro. Fully agree. Uh, I was once told that democracy is like water during a drought rather than purchasing a beverage down a leisurely stroll down Fifth Avenue, uh, considering a luxury item. So I fully agree. And indeed, this might be the inspiration for another chat we might have with you in the in the future, focusing more on democracy. Closing, I'd like to ask a more personal question just to end our discussion on a higher note. I was wondering if you can tell us of a memory you have of Myanmar, of the country, the people, the resilience, the beauty, mm-hmm. something personal, something positive you can share with us from the time you spent there as a diplomat or otherwise just so we can end up our discussion on a higher note. Well, if you give me an hour just talking about my five <laughs> years as ambassador or for, you know, and I can give you nothing but uh, really pleasant uh, memories. Um, it is a complicated place, no doubt about it. Even nothing was ever perfect. And they had a lot of problems, as we know. Uh, even before this, there was the Rohingya crisis. But it is an absolutely beautiful place. The people are stunningly friendly, stunningly generous. The potential they would be on international delegations, and I would always hear back, you know, the best on the delegation with the, with the Myanmar, the Burmese. So just really uh, sharp and resourceful. I mean, it, their desire for change, their desire for democracy, you just see it even today. What we're seeing today in the streets in some ways is inspirational. They voted overwhelmingly for democracy and for change and for freedom against the military. And, you know, one of my best memories has to be on election day in 2015. I mean, a lot of great days when I was there, pleasing uh, as the place opened up. But election day, people were so proud to come out, even though they had chances in the past that weren't respected. They came out and they had their moment where they showed their, their purple finger. They had big smiles. They were hopeful. And the day after when they saw, and days after when they saw that they had uh, elected the representatives they wanted, including Aung San Suu Kyi, there was a sense of real hope and real positivity. And we knew it wasn't going to be easy. There wasn't a sense that this was done. We knew the Rohingya issue was still out there pending. We knew the military was not going to give up its power easily. But the people are the ones that give me the inspiration and the potential of that place if the military could simply get out of the way. So we all, I think all of us should be inspired by the country. Do not let it fall into the shadows. 
think about them, support them. We both should be supporting civil society today. Uh, the young people, even if they become you know, inside or outside the country, wherever they are, we should be supporting them because someday they will get what they what they are desiring. And we should be there helping them and showing solidarity with them in their greatest time of need. Many thanks. I have to say, I also wish we had another hour to be discussing some of these things. I have an endless list of questions I haven't been able to ask, but I'll restrain myself because our time is up. <laughs> no. um, and there are three things I need to do. Uh, first off, I would like to thank you wholeheartedly for being with us. Ambassador Mitchell, many thanks indeed. Thank you. The second thing is to say that FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies, is on all podcast platforms. So please do make sure you subscribe. And finally, as I always do, I will leave you with a quote. And this time around, the quote is by science fiction author Isaac Asimov, who used to say that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Let's just hope that this soon becomes more obviously true, or at least that the latter part becomes one of the main reasons why the former part ceases to exist in Myanmar and elsewhere. Many thanks to all for listening. Have an excellent afternoon. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.